welcome to the Rethinking Learning Podcast. I'm Barbara Bray, and this is where I have conversations on learning with inspirational educators, thought leaders, and difference makers. Hi, everyone. I am really excited to have Nicole Biscotti here. I have been wanting to talk to Nicole for a long, 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 long time. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you, Barbara. I'm really, really excited to be here as well. Well, I just, every time I see you write, do something on Twitter and you wrote something from my book, and um, I just wanted to really get to know you even better. And we have, we've been having some conversations. So this is just lovely. <laughs> I am very excited to be on your podcast. I, for a long time, have read your blog and your writings and things that you would put out on Twitter about student choice and student voice, and I, I just love it. It's very inspiring. Oh, well, we this is one of those mutual admiration societies here. So I'm going to tell everyone a little bit about you, all right? Sounds good. Thank you. Okay. So Nicole is proud to be an educator and believes that everyone should have access to a quality education that connects them with their purpose. She seeks to bridge understanding, spark conversations, and inspire through her writing. Ooh, that touches my heart. (laughs) So Nicole is writing a book with her nine-year-old son, Jason. And it's from the perspectives of a child and a mother who is also a teacher. Yes, it is. And I am looking so forward to that book, Nicole. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. So I, uh, I always like to have everyone tell a little bit about their background, uh, where you grew up, and, you know, just about you. Great. Well, thank you, Barbara. I grew up between New York City and Phoenix, Arizona. Um, I actually moved to Arizona when I was six, and then I did a lot of back and forth. My parents um, divorced when I was six years old, and like a lot of the students that I have, my my. Um, childhood was filled with a lot of instability and chaos. I moved a lot. I had a few different living situations. And honestly, the, mm. the setting and the characters change frequently. And it's a little bit hard maybe to share about things like that sometimes, but I think it's very important to share about that as well, because I know that not everybody that I work with, um, definitely in my demographic at my school, and many kids today Uh, do come from a background like that, where they're dealing with instability at home, frequent changes, and then just how difficult it is to be a kid. Well, you brought up something. We never really, you know, when school is school, a lot of times we just go right into the content. We don't get to know the kids. And we don't realize that so many, like you, might have come from broken homes, might have had some trauma, might have had other issues going on. And... Um, well, we're going to probably try to dig deeper and just feel, because you're so awesome. I want to know how that happened. Because uh, I think that also helps if we model that for our kids, right? Thank you. And I, I really do hope that through my work, I can model that and hopefully give some people some tools to become more empowered to seek their purpose. Oh, that's so, yeah, it's hard to talk about some of these things, but w- when kids know that they're not alone, that other people have gone through it, and um, and some of the ways and strategies they use to get through it really helps them. 
So maybe what was it like for you to be a student going from New York to Phoenix and back and forth like that? I think because I moved a lot, I think there was a lot of gaps in my education. Um, I was also very introverted and I was very disconnected from the classroom most of my schooling. I have a lot of kids in my classroom. I call them the sleepers. And I think most teachers know what I'm talking Mm -hmm. about. Those kids that we don't really know their ability because they're not really plugged into the classroom environment. They're quiet. Sometimes they're literally trying to sleep. Um, but they're just not very interested in being engaged in, this, in the school setting. And I was one of those kids. I was um, very disengaged mm. until high school. And then I, I did have a turnaround and became an honor student, in fact. Whoa. Was there a particular situation that caused that to have you turn around or a teacher or something else? Or? When I was uh, 14, I went to live with my dad back in New York City. And my father has extremely high expectations or had, well, has (laughs) very high expectations of me academically. And I think I saw moving as a fresh start. I think I was um, somewhat empowered by the fact that I knew that my dad believed in me 150%. And my dad was a stand for me to, um, to do well in school. And I really wanted to please him. I was starting a fresh and a fresh start and I wanted to do well. Wow. Isn't that, sometimes it takes one person and one adult, you know, just to believe in you, right? And he certainly did. I mean, he, I'll never forget him bringing me to register for school with the dean of students and I had failing grades and he was telling the lady that I, um, I'm smart. That was always his word. And that he wanted me in honors classes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Good for him. Did, and you said you made it into honors classes, right? Well, I didn't make it into honors classes immediately. Um, she did not. She declined to place me in honors classes because even my standard um, exams, my state exams were low. So um, what she did is she put me in regular classes. And my English teacher actually was in charge of the honors program. And she pulled me back into the honors program. Wow. See? Yeah. That's amazing. That's kind of a good story to tell because a lot of it sometimes it's not that, you know, we always think it's an intrinsic motivation. We should believe in ourselves. But if we haven't had those good experiences and people haven't said them things to us, we might not really believe that we can do it. No, and I think I got how important it was to my dad because I remember on parent-teacher night, he went through my whole schedule. And um, I thought we were done. And he said, oh, no, I need to go speak to Ms. Zimmerman. And he waited in her office to let her know. And I doubt she even remembered him, but he remembered her name because he wanted to show her that I had indeed been put in honors. Oh, oh, I love that. What a a wonderful story. So then... um, you, you, where are you living now? I live in Phoenix, Arizona. So you're back. You, went, you moved back. Yeah. I did. And, and you have a pretty large family. I do. Right? I do. <laughs> tell, tell a little bit about your family and, and how you moved back and, you know, how that all happened there. Well, I ended up coming back um, to Phoenix for my family support after separating from my kid's father. My uh, mother lives here and my grandmother, and I I wanted to be close to my family. 
So I, I came back to Phoenix. Um, I have four children. My oldest son, Nicholas, um, is at Arizona State University. He's um, in the Marines. He's on a Marine scholarship. And then I have 10-year-old twin girls, Rose and Julia. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> They're um, identical, but one of them is a diva, and the other one always has messy hair and wears basketball shorts. <laughs> so they don't look, look exactly alike. <laughs> They're so different. Oh, my gosh. And then oh. I have nine-year-old Jason. Oh, my gosh. And you and you raised them yourself. But luckily, you had support, which was good. But still, that's tough. I did. And then I have my better half, Ruben, who's excellent with my kids. Oh, well, that's wonderful. That's really wonderful. So you had gaps. Let's see. Wait, wait, there were some things you, you mentioned to me about all of this. But maybe I missed one thing was... How your education, you were living in New York when, when you had your four children? No, I was actually living in Florida. Oh, oh wow. You did a little. <laughs> I've moved a lot, Barbara. Oh, wow. Wow. So, so um, what were you doing? Were you raising children, going to school? I mean, what are some of the things that happened to you from when you went from New York to back to Phoenix? Via Florida. <laughs> well, before I became an educator at 38, most of my life, I worked for myself. In Florida, I had a small language school called Bilingual Advantage. And then really? I had, yes, and, th and then I had a mattress store for a while. A mattress store? I did. <laughs> now that I did not know. That is interesting. It's a, so, you so you have that entrepreneurial side of you. Yes. That I don't think people know. Very much so. I, I've pretty much most of my life worked for myself, either as an interpreter and translator or having a small business. But I've always been kind of a wanderer and definitely marched to the beat of my own drum. That's exciting. Well, that's from someone who was an introvert. That's pretty big. <laughs> Thank you. No, really. I mean, so I you wait. You went through had these other jobs. Ended up at 38, you were ended up back in Phoenix. Is that right? And that's when you decided to go back into education or go into education. Yes. When I was in the mattress store, um, I, was, I had a lot of free time in, back in Florida. So I had started to do my master's online. But it wasn't until I moved to Phoenix that I finished and became an educator. My goodness, you have a story. That is a lot. Uh, so when you went into um, education and you got your master's degree, what uh, specific field in, a, in education? I'm a Spanish teacher um, and a world languages department chair in, in Arizona here. So you speak Spanish? Yes, I do. So did you speak Spanish growing up? I not, um, not fluently. I have some family from Puerto Rico. And then my dad speaks Italian. So I, I heard both languages and I definitely had a lot of exposure, but it was really through my own sort of desire to learn Spanish and just talking to friends and traveling. And then ultimately I, I majored in Spanish. Well, that's amazing. I, well, you, you said that you're, you have a commitment 
which begins by promoting bilingualism. And some school districts have gotten, didn't, they got rid of that. And now they're bringing it back. Is that right? Or Yes, it's definitely a movement. We're going towards language immersion programs. I think it's wonderful because um, what really is sad when someone speaks another language and they have to speak English, they might be really smart in their own language, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then... I can't even imagine going moving to another country and trying to learn math or write an essay in a language I don't know how to speak or write. It it, <laughs> it is definitely a huge roadblock for a lot of kids. And it's just one of the roadblocks that kids are facing. So um, tell me a little bit about your classroom and, and, you know, teaching Spanish and kind of what you've done with, you've moved, I mean, you mentioned voice and choice and what I've, you know, because you read some of the things. You do that in your class. How, what do you do? I absolutely do that. So most of the sections that I teach are a class called Spanish for Native Speakers, which is really a class for kids that actually speak Spanish every day at home. Most of their parents um, are not proficient in English and the, the dominant language in the household is Spanish. But what people don't realize is that even though they speak Spanish every day, they speak a very limited Spanish because just like a kid would come to school at five years old speaking English, how many years of reading do we give them in spelling and literature and, and et cetera, et cetera, right? Writing. These kids get zero of that. Mm. So they, although they speak Spanish, most of them have no um, background in reading and writing. They don't know the literature. They only know their heritage um, in terms of the country that their parents are from. So they don't realize the richness of the Hispanic culture across 21 countries um, that have Spanish as an official language. So there's really a lot for them to learn. And it's, it's a very fun class, very exciting class. Oh, I, well, I love that, the idea of um, the culture. And you must, so what do you do to, so that helps them understand the culture? Well, that's where I really implement a lot of student voice and choice. Um, mm -hmm. I like them when, they, when they, all the projects are choice-based. And I'll always coach them before the project and say, remember, you have a choice here. You can choose to focus in on the, the, the country that your family's from and maybe study an issue like, let's say, your, your mom and dad are from Jalisco and you'd like to study the education in Jalisco. You can certainly do that and learn more about your own background. Or you can take a country that you probably know nothing about, like maybe Paraguay, Uruguay, Argentina, and you can go totally random and learn something about, learn about the education system in a totally different country. So during the year, I sort of guide them towards doing both. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, there are, um, I've worked with a lot of different world language teachers, and what I see is, not everyone's teaching it the same. And I, I'm just going to, I want you to boast a little bit <laughs> about what makes it, what makes your class so special? Because you've told me some things and I, I just want people to hear because maybe if they know that projects really, and giving them choice and, and letting them have their opinions about things, just some, some of the ways you do that will help them. So the population that I'm working with is primarily of Mexican descent because I live in Arizona. And there's 21 countries that have Spanish as the um, official language. 
So what I do in every project that we're going to approach is I give, I kind of coach the kids that this project can be an opportunity for you to learn more about your personal identity. So like, let's say your family is from Jalisco, you can certainly study the education system in Jalisco or choose a social justice issue that you'd like to research in Jalisco. But the other opportunity that you have is to learn more about the Spanish-speaking world. So you can also certainly choose to work with Uruguay or Argentina and learn something totally new about a different country, which is in some way part of your heritage as well. Yeah, I love that. You And what I like is you're bridging some of these ideas um, with peer support. I mean, you're having them work together in groups. Or do you have them work individually? No, I almost always have them work in peers because I, I think the peer support piece is really important, the peer editing. And to be honest with you, I think that Spanish is all about, it's a language, it's communication, it's social. And I just think that there's a lot more learning, it's a richer learning opportunity if they can work together. Oh, I think it's, for any class, I think it's wonderful if they can work together. But when they're working about cult, learning the culture, I think that's really really important. So how long have you been working as a Spanish teacher? I've For six years. Six years. Oh, six. wow. Yes. You, I've been teaching in the public school system for six years. And then prior to that, I owned a language school for three years. Oh, that's what it was. Because I thought you were doing this for so long, you know, real long, long time. And I realized, oh, you had a mattress <laughs> in your <laughs> company and you had these other things going on. And I'm, I'm just kind of blown away that you did some of these things before. I, You know, I, I'm an entrepreneur and I um, have my own, I have several businesses because <laughs> I'm a little, I'm a little different. And so, um but what I find is that when you can share some of the things that you're doing, because I bet you some of the kids, if they even looked at um, different types of opportunities, they could even kind of think of a business plan and write it in Spanish and share it in Spanish about something that they could do. That's just Ab an idea. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And I do incorporate marketing, business plans, and then also um, social justice and then presentations as well, because I really want my students, they have such a huge advantage being bilingual, but I, I want to just sharpen their skills so that they can feel comfortable presenting in a company um, in Spanish as well. I like that because really, um, I, I don't want to say language, there's a language barrier, but it, it, they still need to learn those social skills and the skills that they'll need to be successful no matter what language it is. And so what you're doing is just you're incorporating them and then weaving it in so they can show. I can't wait to see some of them. So on that note. <laughs> I'll have to send you, you pictures. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll put the pictures on. We put a post together. You and I will do that. Kind of, you know, put a post together from the that goes with the podcast. Maybe you can put some pictures up. Awesome. That'd be wonderful if you'd like. Yes, definitely. Okay. That'd be great. One of the things, yeah, and the other thing, you and I talked about your book. Yes. That you're writing. And uh, when you when we first talked on the phone, you had two books in, in mind. And I, you know, when you started telling me about both of the books, I I was sitting there going, you have the, this idea is so amazing. 
so amazing because there's so many kids that are like your son. And I'm going to let you, do you want to explain that and kind of maybe even what we talked about? Absolutely. So my son, Jason, is nine years old and he has ADHD and oppositional disorder. And in all honesty, Jason's ADHD and oppositional disorder have been quite a challenge. It's, I, I consider it a journey to parent a kid with ADHD. It's something that I was unprepared for. Even though he's my fourth baby, and even though I'm a teacher, I didn't know how to handle ADHD at all, like zero. So as Jason's learning to be successful in school, I've had to learn how to support him. And we began this book really as a journal. We used to journal um, when he would get angry. So we would sit together and journal. And, and then I realized that we were starting to weave stories together. And then as I shared more and more on Twitter, hmm. I started to realize how much our story, and this was a big surprise to me in all honesty, to realize how much our story resonates with other people because they're going through it as well. And the more I realized how many other people are going through it, and you have to realize that I mostly interact with teachers. But then I started to think about what about all the little kids out there that are struggling and their moms and dads aren't teachers and maybe don't have all of the resource or resources or the comfort level in asking questions and, um, and knowing how to work with the school. Mm-hmm. So then it, it sort of grew into this, this idea of writing a book together from his perspective and then from mine as well as a mom and as a teacher. Well, I'm I'm fortunate. You sent me some of your story before you even decided to write a book. And I just, it touched my heart. It touched my heart because I know so many kids and even my kids <laughs> and even myself. Um, I'm a, you know, I mentioned to you that I wasn't diagnosed, but there was something different about me. And I know kids that have had issues and maybe been diagnosed, but they really didn't give us any help. There was not much, like you said, as a teacher and a mom, it's all new to you. How did you handle? How did you handle it? I'm, I'm trying to figure out some of the things that I needed or what I would have done. And honestly, I've learned some strategies along the way that I definitely have seen worked with Jason. And then that's led me to start reading and researching. But beyond strategies, I I would say that every kid, period, is so different. And definitely ADHD presents itself differently in every person. I think the underlying Mm -hmm. piece is that you have to just keep questioning, keep observing, keep communicating. This is such an ongoing process. We had an issue just a few days ago. Um, There was an incident at school, and I wasn't quite sure how to handle it. And I spoke to a friend of mine and reflected, and then I I had a conversation with the principal. And I had to tell the principal, Just I I just told her, I said, I I don't know how to explain this to you, and I hope that this doesn't make you feel defensive, but I have to tell you how Jason feels. And I just had to be that honest with her because – Sometimes there is no prescription. It's just really continuing the communication. You know, it's hard because some teach. I, I'm, I'm going to bring up an incident that happened to one of my children in fourth grade. 
And I was teaching at the school, but it was a different teacher. And I mentioned that my child who had uh, feelings was embarrassed and hurt. And uh, she got very defensive. Yes, I've come across it's that. It's almost quite like, a bit. it's like, how dare you question my teaching? You know what I mean? And I'm just thinking, aren't we supposed to be here for our kids? Isn't it really the kids first? It's not really about us. Is that right? <laughs> Absolutely, Barbara. And it has to be because th- those are the people that we're educating. And as a mom, I'll be honest, it's been very confronting for me personally because I'm a little shy sometimes. Sometimes I feel uncomfortable expressing myself. But I have to express Jason's voice. I have to. I, I just have to because mm-hmm. that's my job. Nobody else is going to. And there's been times like the other day when I had to say to the lady, I don't know how to say this to you, but I have to. Thankfully, she was very kind about it, by the way. Yeah. Well, I think that there's a lot more um, resources out there and more people talking about it. They didn't even even know what it was before. And now a lot of people are identified with ADHD or and other issues. So, um, you know, I think... I mean, to me, having you write this book and having Jason also, and even putting up the videos you've put up, it's just, I'm really impressed. I'm impressed with Jason. I, I, I mean, he's talking about things that are very personal to him, and he's not that old. I, I, it's, it's amazing. Thank you. And that's something that all along has been very clear to him, that he can share what he wants when he feels like. Um, It's definitely been his choice. He's um, said that he'll speak at any school but his own. Um, But he does want to speak and he wants for people to understand how he feels. And I think that although it's sometimes embarrassing to him, at the same time, I think it's very validating to him. I I didn't realize that that would be an effect of this work. But I think he, he feels a sense of me standing up for him by starting these conversations. And one thing that I've really noticed in this whole journey that I've had is that, you know, we move to the inclusion model, and there's a lot of benefits to the inclusion model. But if you look at teacher education, it has not kept pace in the sense that mm-hmm. we now have students in our classroom with multiple learning differences, but where did they change our education? Where did we get practicum about that? And the truth is that most of us didn't. So I think we have wow. to talk about it. Well, then, I think your book will be good for professional development and you know professional learning. I think if we could, you see, when I've done some professional development, I and we had social emotional learning and some of the things about inclusion. I said, why aren't the kids here? With the teachers. Exactly. That's on my we website. we can ask the kids. Yeah. That's on my I, oh, website. I didn't know that. Yes. Oh, I, the, I have a quote on, um, I have a page about student choice and voice. And at the very top, it says something like, how much time do we spend in schools talking about what's good for kids and what they need without asking the kids? Yeah. I mean, if we just ask them and... And then we'd really listen. I mean, if a, if a child like Jason or another child that has other issues is really hurting and doesn't feel anyone hears them, 
they're going to shut down and they're not going to be successful anywhere if if they feel that there's no sense of belonging, no one listens or cares about them. Well, some kids will shut down. I personally shut down and became very disengaged at school. But the other, you know, people it basically either implode or explode. When Jason had that incident mm-hmm. the other day, I wasn't able to speak to the principal for two days um, just because we were missing each other. And I, I knew this would happen, and unfortunately it did. The day after the incident, Jason had to go to the counselor's office three times because Jason explodes, not implodes. <laughs> so what happens is that he gets his feelings Aww. hurt or he feels offended and he has oppositional disorder. He starts getting oppositional, which is something that we see. There's a lot of crossover between oppositional disorder and ADHD in all reality um, with the impulsivity and, and some of the violence. So Jason's now nine years old, so he's able to control himself more. But when he was five years old, what that looked like would be him either running all over the campus for an hour and a half and nobody being able to catch him or him throwing things and then having uh-huh. to clear a classroom. So the, the, the violence and the tension would just escalate. And then because there's a lack of information and understanding above all, the tension levels with him and the teachers would just continue to go up and up. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that I could see that would be really difficult for Jason and the teacher and the other kids in the class because they're not sure what's going on. It's Absolutely. Almost, you know what? I'm wondering, like in your book, to talk about this, because this is pretty brave of, I mean, that's a lot of courage to actually share and open up about the problems you have when you're not even sure what's going on in your head, right? He, yeah. He probably doesn't know either. Um, how... It would. I'm kind of curious what kinds of things Jason has said of what he might have needed or needed when he had these problems. What was causing it? Does he know? Or Yes, um, he does know. Often he'll tell me, I don't, like, for example, one thing he said is that, and I found this really interesting because if you Google strategies for classroom management with ADHD kids, one of the first things they'll tell you is to repeat the rules, to break the rules down, you know, like to chunk the rules when you're telling the kids, scaffold the rules. And actually that triggers Jason because he says, Mm -hmm. Mom, when I'm doing something bad, I already know what the rules are. I have no trouble understanding the rules. My problem is that I just need a quiet place to sit down. Or I just need someone to help me calm my body. Or I need to move. And what adults tend to do in situations like that is become kind of patronizing, maybe unintentionally, and say, now, Jason, you need to sit in your seat when he's running around the classroom. Well, Jason knows that he needs to sit in his seat. You know, he, he's, he's intelligent. He understands that. Yeah. The problem is that he can't control himself at that time. So he really needs help with self-regulation. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one for a class of 20, 30 kids. It really is. But it would, what I, you know, I ended up working with um, different schools. And one of the things that I saw was the way the classrooms were set up, there was no place to put anyone quiet, let them be quiet. 
Yes, and that's something I've had to advocate for Jason once I understood that that worked for him. At the mm-hmm. be- in the beginning, and, and this is such a learning process, in the be- and this yeah. is why this is not anybody as an expert getting up giving strategies. This is a conversation. It really is. Yeah. yeah. Because in the beginning, I thought that if we put Jason in the back to avoid distractions or gave him his own seat uh, instead of being on circle time on the carpet, he could be in a chair. I thought we were isolating him. But what I learned is that he feels more comfortable and he likes, actually, what Jason prefers is that they put a box of tape around his desk area and that they allow him to fidget within that area. And he said, oh. yeah. And I thought, That's oh, my God, what are you putting a mark around my kid? Like, do we have to make it that obvious? But he, <laughs> you know, like, I, at first I really balked against that. Like, okay, do we need a letter on him now, you know? But yeah. what I realized or what he, not I realized, he told me, and again, that's that communication that I've developed with him and that he's been willing to, to hang with, is, Mom, I prefer to have a box around me because I know that I can move within my box. And guess what? I also know that nobody else can come in my box. Wow. Wouldn't that be great if every kid could recognize what they need? If every ki- and, and then we listen to them. Yes. And that's what the book is about, really, right there. Yeah. It's about getting teachers to maybe hear things from a mom's perspective, hear things from a child's perspective. And then there's a whole chapter about ADHD and student voice. And then go, just to go back to what you said about the other kids, Barbara, I really have a lot of compassion for any kid that's had to sit next to Jason, maybe not this year, but in his former years, absolutely. I don't know whether the model that we're in or Jason being in a regular classroom is the best idea. I'm, I'm not qualified to take that on. But what I do know is that if this is the model, then we also need to repair the other children. So yeah. something that I've spoken with, um, with Mandy at Edumatch and also with Sarah is later on after the book is released, we're going to be doing children's books that correspond to each chapter. And, the, <sighs> and these books are designed to be stories and to be entertaining, but to sort of let kids know what it feels like to be a kid with ADHD and how they might act and why. Oh, gosh. I, so lucky, lucky me. I'm working with Sarah and Mandy at EduMatch, too, because I'm writing a book there. But the idea that they came up, are you, did you come up with that idea or did they come up with that idea? I came up with the idea of children's books and then that Uh was Mandy's idea to attach them to each chapter so that we could deepen the conversation so that the teacher could be reading or the parent and then Uh the kid. Oh, they're so brilliant. They're amazing. That is wonderful. Aren't they, aren't you glad? I told you they were wonderful. The right people come at the right time. I told you that. They're yes. just amazing. So, um, oh man, I could talk to you forever, but I actually have to, <laughs> you know, cut, you know, cut this cl- yeah, yeah, off right now. But I, oh, I am so excited that we did talk about the things I wanted to talk about, which was uh, one, your book, and find out a little bit more about you. And I knowing <laughs> that you had your own school and you had a mattress company. Come on. I didn't know any of that. And, <laughs> and that your son is amazing. He's Thank amazing. You. He's learning how to tell what he needs. And I think that's uh, one thing that all of us need to be able to say, I need it. Maybe if I need a box around me, <laughs> that's what I need. Right? Exactly. Exactly. If all kids told us, and as you said, if we listened. Yeah. And also acted on it. 
and said, let's try it. And so if we could leave, you know, one suggestion for, you know, one thing, I think that's it. Listen, right? Yes. Listen. Oh, I love this. This was really, really wonderful. It really was, Barbara. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you are so welcome. Well, we will definitely put the post together and share this, but Nicole, you're a dear. And Jason, he's just wonderful. I can't wait to meet him in person. (laughs) That has to happen. Thank you. Okay. Bye now. Bye now. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning Podcast and my conversation with Nicole Biscotti. Make sure you check out the complimentary blog post about Nicole and her story along with resources and links. Please subscribe to the podcast. We welcome your review and to share out the post with the podcast. You can also subscribe to my website, barbabray.net, to receive announcements and updates so you don't miss any of the conversations.